Cowboy went riding out one dark and windy day Up on a ridge he rested as he went along his way When all at once a mighty herd of red-eyed cows he saw Plowing through the ragged skies And up a cloudy draw Their brands were still on fire and their hooves were made of steel Their horns were black and shiny and their hot breath he could feel A bolt of fear went through him as they thundered through the sky For he saw the riders coming hard And he heard their mournful cry Their eyes were blurred, their shirts all soaked with sweat He's riding hard to catch that herd But he ain't caught them yet Cause they've got to ride forever On that range up in the sky All the horses snorting fire As they ride on, hear their cry Riders loped on by him, he heard one call his name If you want to save your soul from hell riding on our range Then cowboy, change your ways, if they are with us you will ride Trying to catch the devil's herd Across these endless skies Yippee-i-o And my guest this week is Paul Kirchner. Uh, Paul's main thing a lot of folks will be familiar with is quite likely the bus from uh, that was featured in Heavy Metal back in the 
late 70s, early 80s, the kind of half-page odd non-sequitur that kind of stood out with the rest of the work uh, in a really interesting way, um, as well as there is a second bus collection, both uh, from Tenebus Books and a new book collecting a whole bunch of other works by Paul um, from the from the 70s into the aughts. Or no, to 2014, I think? Yeah, the last, yeah. Uh, the last work that I did that appears in that book was in 2014. There we go. A 40-year spread, 74 to, to 14, uh, waiting the collapse also from Tenebus Books. Um, I was really excited by the the by seeing the awaiting the collapse. I was kind of not expecting that, and then the publisher actually emailed me like, "Hey, are you interested in this book?" I'm like, "Yes." Um, <laughs> to one of the things I really enjoy, it like is seeing um, a creator's work kind of gathered up all together and kind of giving it that context of its own. I actually just interviewed uh, someone a couple weeks ago where her like thirty year collection of um, alternative comics from like the 80s to the present um, and how seeing uh, the change in growth but also like finding all this like disparate works all coming together um, without having to hunt it down which I think uh, Awaiting the Collapse is definitely things from a lot of different places. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I really um, have been very happy with my relationship with uh, Tanibus which is uh, kind of a one-man show with uh, Claude Amougay, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, you know, he, he puts together these books, and he's absolutely painstaking with them. Uh, for example, we wanted to, he wanted to reproduce some of my early dope writers in color. He wanted to have me color them, but they were covered with, you know, those uh, Zipatone dots, mm-hmm. which not only don't look <laughs> they don't reproduce that well, but they, um, you know, they, it's just a bit of a grubby look. So he uh, removed them all painstakingly, by, and by, one by one. So, uh, you know, we were able to recreate that work in color. And uh, we also went through the book, and some of this stuff had to be reproduced. I, I don't have the originals on a lot of this stuff, because I've sold them over the years when... Money was uh, uh, in short supply, and um, he had French comics where the work had been reproduced in black and white. So we used a lot of that stuff and cleaned it up and recolored it, and uh, I was very happy with and I, and I also deferred to his judgment quite a bit on what should be in the book. I mean, I've, I'm not really sure my own judgment is the best, but... Uh, it's good to have someone you respect to bounce things off of, and well, we have a good good relationship. It, it's a curated collection, uh, yes. not, not an all-encompassing. Thing. Yeah, he wanted a he wanted a balance. So, I mean, in the reviews that I saw, some people complained that, or someone, you know, that um, one of my heavy metal stories, color stories, wasn't in there, and and I have to admit, I was. A, that was a story that I liked. I was a little bit disappointed, but uh, I, you know, he wanted a balance. He wanted to balance the dope rider stuff from high times, the uh, heavy metal stuff, and uh, the erotica that I was doing in the seventies uh, for Screw Magazine, and some of the glossy uh, uh, men's 
<laughs> so-called men's magazines. Uh, so, you know, I think he did a pretty good job. And your relationship started with him when he did a collection of the bus that came back out, was that 2012? That the... Yeah, he had contacted me a year before that and uh, told me he thought it was about time to bring out another collection of the bus. Um, Pat Paladin had published a collection, not Paladin, Ballad, Ballantyne had mm-hmm. published a collection in the mid-80s I think 87 or so, and um, they actually left out about a half a dozen of the strips, maybe for page count or something. And they were also not so well reproduced, and this book size was somewhat small. And Claude did a really, really nice job with it. He, everything was very cleaned up. Uh, fortunately, I had, I had uh, photostats of most of the originals. And... Uh, you know, we got them all in, and he had me write a little explanation of how it came about. And so that, that was fortuitous. There, there, there seemed to be some more interest in the bus because people started putting it up on uh, Pinterest and, uh, you know, the, these uh, sites where you just post a bunch of pictures. Mm-hmm. So I was starting to hear from people again, and... Um, the interesting thing about comics is that normally if you wrote a book and people just scanned it and stuck up it on the internet, you'd be pretty angry. <laughs> but comic fans, they like having a book. It doesn't matter. Somebody could put the whole thing up on the internet, and if they like it, they want the book because it's going to be better and it'll be something they can have on their shelf. So I don't, it doesn't give me any uh, aggravation. When yet again I see someone that scanned the whole book and put, <laughs> put it up there, you know, it's it's all good. There's so, a, it's like an inevitability, um, and just kind of how you engage that, I guess. Yeah. So anyway, um, the next thing that happened there was I decided that I should do another collection of bus strips if I could think of them because. The originals were selling pretty well. I was pretty pretty happy with that. What I had left, you know, was scooped up. So I thought, well, I'll try to come up with another book. And I told Claude, I said, well, what if I can only come up with a dozen? He said, well, then we'll put out a little pamphlet. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I started thinking about them. And... and uh, I, I, one of the things I thought was, well, if, if nothing else, hopefully I could sell the originals. So, you know, it's, it's worth the effort. And uh, another factor which contributes to this is that this was around the time that my advertising work was really drying up. And that's what I've been making a living off of for uh, starting from the mid-'80s until uh, – you know, 2010 or so, I was, you know, pulling in a pretty decent living uh, from doing advertising storyboards. And it just, for for various reasons, including that the business has changed a lot and the way they do business has changed. And uh, to be honest, I don't think my style looked as contemporary as, you know, they, they needed. I, you know, you get to a certain point where, you know, it was like Ditko in the late 60s still drawing 
every guy had a hat on when he was walking mm. around Manhattan, you know, it just didn't quite look like the world you're used to. I think he was still but, doing it into the last couple of years, too. <laughs> yeah, the, the hat thing. Um, so, uh, I, so, well, frankly, as, as a matter of, uh, the work slowing down and me kind of wondering what I was going to do with myself, I, I really get, kind of got depressed and, you know, I had a lot of, uh, uh, sleepless nights and, you know, so I needed a project. So I started working on the bus and I found that just the process of work felt, um, was therapeutic. I, I just started feeling a lot more positive and, um, whether it went anywhere or not, you know, that, <laughs> that, that was kind of an important lesson for me. So the other good thing was that in all the years I've been doing a lot of commercial illustration and advertising, I really began to wonder if I could come up with these, these kooky ideas again. I, I thought, well, you know, when you it's like rock singers. They do their great work in their teens and 20s, and but it just sort of, seems to be the end of it, you know? They, they just spend the rest of their careers replaying that stuff in concerts. And I thought, well, maybe that's like being a cartoonist, you know? You, you have your, your creative period, and then you kind of... Your, your brain runs out of that, that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, so anyway, it was very encouraging that the idea started to come, and, you know, I'd get myself in the right frame of mind, and ideas would pop into my head. And um, so eventually, I, you know, I got up to like 48 pages for the second book. And I, because that's the thing I'm best known for, those originals, they were just all scooped up by a uh, gallery in France. And, you know, the whole thing was quite satisfactory. But I, th I think I'm kind of out of gas on the bus now. I, got, I, I had a 30-year hiatus from that. I may need another one. <laughs> the, the bus has <laughs> run its trip. Well, the thing is, is that theoretically, uh, if you know, the, the, there's an interesting limitation to the concept because you're thinking of like, okay, there's this guy. He wants to get on the bus and wants to go somewhere. Something's going to happen. It's either going to happen while he's waiting for the bus when he gets on the bus, when he sits down on the bus, when he tries to get off the bus, you know, those are the situations. Theoretically, there should be an infinite number of things you could do with that. And if you gave it to another artist, they might start thinking of all the different things you could do with it that I'd never done. But for me, I started thinking of ideas and then having to discuss you know, discard them because you think, well, that's kind of just a variation on something I already did, you know. So you get into that point yeah. where you're, you're sort of thinking maybe your mind is just going to keep you leading you in certain directions and you would need a long break before um, you're really coming up with something fresh and different. I remember when the the, the first collection came out in, in 2012, um, a lot of folks in kind of the art comic circle are really excited, and it's interesting how that work kind of has touched on these particular communities doing kind of more odder, weirder, avant-garde uh, comics work or engaging that kind of work. Um, 
and it plays a neat role in kind of bridging um, the kind of genre populist of heavy metal with with this kind of weird idiosyncrasy. Um, and do you, did you ever kind of see that kind of engagement or overlap happening, or expect <laughs> that, or is that kind of like? Well, it is funny. I got I got a. Uh... You know, sometimes I look on forums where people are talking about this stuff. I, I get nice letters from people sometimes. And one of them said, you know, the bus was only was the only really weird thing in heavy metal. <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, that, that everything else is kind of, you know, fantasy science fiction thing. But as far as just having a really skewed version of reality, um, this correspondent felt that uh, it, it filled that slot. So, <laughs> well, that, And the, the amazing thing about it is it's obviously very skilled drawing work. Like doing just weird absurdist stuff, which I think really a lot of people latch on to to kind of see <laughs> that kind of melding thing where like you have these technical chops, but you're not doing just straight up genre piece you're you're doing you know something that like if escher did comics <laughs> uh you know it's interesting when i did my graphic novel murder by remote control with uh van de wettering that i i really tried to do something very realistic uh you know in kind of my Wallywood influenced thinking style, but um, and I actually took photos. It's one of the only things like that where I, I, you know, had my characters. I found people. I photographed them, and I didn't. I didn't want to trace the photos. I hate that look. But I, I did work from them mm-hmm. to uh, keep the likenesses and everything. And that book, which came out in the late '80s, was um, reviewed in the New York Times by Gayan Wilson. And he, he kind of criticized the drawing for being too kind of concrete and solid. And, and I thought, you know, giving that a little bit of thought, obviously I respect his opinion, but I thought, um, well, that's what you want to do with surrealism. I mean, if, if the absurd surrealistic elements are not played off against something that looks real and grounded, it, it's not real surrealism. I mean, you know, that's what makes Salvador Dali work, is that the things he paints looks, look absolutely real and concrete, mm-hmm. and yet they're set in these weird dreams. And so that's my defense on that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's okay defense. A few uh, months ago, I was in uh, France and Spain. I'd been invited to a uh, comic convention over there. Uh, And uh, my wife and I went to the uh, Salvador Dali Museum in Spain in Figueres. And, oh, God, it's just so blown away. And I was saying to her, I was saying, you know, I, I'm getting the feeling that my dope writer comic is just not weird enough. <laughs> she said, well, you don't want to make it so weird that nobody can tell what the hell is going on. 
I guess that's true. There's a fine line. Oh, it, lines are meant to be blurred. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to kind of rewind a bit uh, because you have a really fascinating history kind of bef- before we even get to doing the bus. Um, looking at your background and you're starting out in comics is um, you play this really interesting role where you're a couple years younger than a lot of the main underground folks, um, five or six, seven years younger. And so you're coming into comics. I'm really interested as like being influenced by these guys, but also being knowledgeable and interested, I'm presuming in other stuff as well. Like, I mean, you mentioned Ditko, a couple minutes ago um, and kind of how that kind of meld in your own interest in starting to do comics. Yeah. You know, it's funny. A few years ago, well, back in 214, I, I, I got, um, or 215, I, I was hired by the um, Boston Globe to do this little retrospective on my career, which they published in their Boomer issue. And they identified me as an underground cartoonist, which, uh, of course, I wasn't. I was too late for that. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's kind of a specific thing. Yeah. I, 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 whatever I am, I guess I'm sort of an alternate venue cartoonist, but not exactly an underground one. But anyway, yeah, I, in high school, big comic fan, loved uh, Marvel Comics, Kirby, Ditko, had a pretty good collection, uh, and uh, then time came to go to college, and uh, I really wanted to go to Cooper Union, because it was in uh, East Village, New York, Cooper Union Art School, and it was free if you got in. They had a competitive exam, and I really wanted to be independent of my parents, um, not because there was anything wrong with my parents, but it was just a real drive I had to just get out and be on my own. Mm-hmm. And the amazing thing is, is that in, that was 1970, um, you could actually do that. <laughs> I, uh, I got into Cooper Union, uh, got an apartment for $80 a month in the Lower East Side, and... Um, had a couple part-time jobs and could support myself while going to school. So uh, that that was, you know, a period when New York was pretty dangerous and pretty exciting. I got to watch a lot of great street fights outside the window, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Hell's Angels roaring up and down, running, running down the Second Avenue down to their. Uh, I was on Sixth Street. They were three blocks below me. And uh, I, uh, you know, was very interested in comics and getting into that, even though my professor, one professor I talked about that with told me it was a a dying medium. He he laughed. But um, I also also got a job in a comic book store, which was, at at the time, I think there there was only one other comic book store in New York that was the Super Snipe Comic Emporium, which was run by a guy named Ed Summer, who um, later went on to 
a fair amount of success because he had bought this, the film rights to Conan and was the producer. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> none, of, none of the rest of us were that smart. But so we had, you know, I worked in this comic bookstore that was uh, pretty interesting. We would, uh, I think Fellini came in there one day because he had a cape and he had an interpreter with him <laughs> and uh, was buying some of these comics. And uh, it, it was also funny that some of these, like, one day one of these Golden Age cartoonists came in, and um, he was he was very bitter. You know, he was like, ah, it's a, you know, it's a sweatshop, get paid peanuts, and they work you to death. And, all. and uh, I was not hearing any of that since it was still my dream. But um, well, likely he did work in a sweatshop like the oh yeah the Eisner Igort studio was notoriously horrible. Um, yeah, well, yeah, the, what those guys put up with amazing. Sorry, but, so I I was also able to start going to some of the early conventions. You know, there was the Feldsuling con- uh, convention every July, and then they had these second Sunday conventions. At, I think the Biltmore Hotel. There was and t- you know to get a table was. I don't know, 20 bucks or something, lay out all your old comics. And you could always come, come away with a, a pretty good uh, um, return on, you know. And uh, I also started buying comics up in Connecticut because no, no one had the word yet at that time that, that there was a market for these things. So I, I put an ad in the paper, you know, buying comics, 10 cents a piece. And, you know, buy these big stacks and bring them back to New York and sell them. And then someone, someone paid $1,000 for the first issue of Superman, and everybody read that article and assumed all their comics were worth a great deal more than they really were. So that, that put an end to that. <laughs> but um, at the conventions, you know, I met Starenko, and I was working on my own comics, and he, uh, he was very encouraging. And... Uh, you know, so I was, I was keeping at it. I remember um, I was working up this comic for a local fanzine, and at the time I didn't have a telephone in my apartment. So I had to walk down a few blocks on 2nd Avenue to use the phone. I carried these four pages with me. Also, at the time, I was not capable of actually drawing a comic strip on one page because I'd make too many mistakes. So it was all a bunch of separate drawings cut out and stuck on illustration boards <laughs> to, to make a comic book. So I get into the, I get into the uh, phone booth, and there's two health angels there. One of them's on the phone, the other one's just waiting outside. So, you know, I got in line, and the health angel outside was kind of a friendly, hippie-ish guy, you know, was talking to me and looking at my stuff, and yeah, just being fine. And then uh, we see this guy from Third Street, where the headquarters was, come barreling across the avenue. One of these huge, fat angels with the, you know, the giant black beard and stuff, and um, the kind that they would nickname Tiny. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he was hollering, you know, where's my truck? Who took my truck? And, and he came running over there, and, and they said, well, uh, I, think, I, I think Frank borrowed it. He had to go out to Jersey. Frank borrowed my truck! You know, he's screaming and hollering. Then he looks over at me, and he goes, and who the hell is this guy? <laughs> the guy goes, uh, 
he draws comics. <laughs> so the guy, the guy, the guy goes, comics, eh? They better make me laugh. And he grabs him out of my hand, and he kind of flips to him, and he goes, ha, ha, ha. And he shoves him back at me and goes, running back to the headquarters. But <laughs> that was my first good review. But, but um, so anyway, uh, I started at art school. I started uh, just using my life drawing class to try to develop my comic skills. I mean, I would draw a model and then put her in some sort of barbarian costume, and then I'd go home and try to ink it up. And uh, one of the uh, girls in my class said, um, I know someone who likes to make women look the same way you like to make them look. And I thought, oh, and who's that? <laughs> and that was Larry Hama. So uh, she gave me his number, and I called him up, and I went down to see him. And uh, he was quite friendly. He was working for Wally Wood at the time. And he said, hey, let's go up to Neil Adams, you know, to continuity. So we got in Subway, and you know everybody always. This was at night. Everybody's always there, day and night, pretty much. Um, Neil had a studio, and it was nine East Forty Eighth Street, second floor up. And it ran the whole length of the building. There were always different rooms in it, and then Neil sat in the front room, and uh, Ralph Reese and Russ Heath often worked up there. Uh, Larry Hama. Um, other, you know, you sometimes some colors, people that were coming into town and, and uh, giving it a try for a few months sometimes were there. Over the years, you know, Terry Austin, Pat Broderick, a lot of, uh, Jack Abel had a regular studio there where he, there were some comic book writers like Carrie Bates who, who were set up. But anyway, so... Um, Neil looked at this story I'd been working on that was like the first thing I'd ever finished to my satisfaction. And he, he, uh, got me work like the next day. He called Joe Orlando at DC and told him he should look at my stuff. And, uh, went to see Joe Orlando and he, he was doing those, you know, house of mystery, house of secrets mm-hmm. kind of comics. And he, had a um, proposition for me, which was that he was friends with Tex Blaisdell. Now, Tex Blaisdell was a guy who had some renown as a a background guy on a lot of newspaper strips, like um, Heart of Juliet Jones and, you know, these, the whole Westport gang that did these, you know, all lived up there and did their newspaper strips. And Tex was an anchor, and Tex needed work. So Joe's proposition was, since I, my penciling was not a, that great by any means, uh, but if I would work with Tex and take a low page rate, then he could afford to give Tex a higher than normal page rate and figure that he would make my pencils look better. So that was fine with me, and I went out and um, <clears throat> Tex lived way out in uh, Flushing, Queens. You know, you had to take the subway and then take a bus to get out to his house. And 
so he was cool. He, he's a wonderful guy. And uh, he, uh, he had another proposition for me, which was that he, was, he had taken over the Little Orphan Annie strip from Harold Gray at the time of his death. And he wanted me to come in one day a week, and the day before it was due, and help him finish it up, and that I would get 50 bucks for that day. So, boy, I mean, that, that pretty much covered all my expenses. <laughs> so uh, I dropped out of art school at that point in my uh, junior year. I, I honestly had to kind of stop going to a lot of the classes. But... Um, I uh, started working for Tex, doing Orphan Annie, and that was kind of a, I don't know, yep, he was a, a great guy, but as a lot of cartoonists are, it's, a, it's very solitary mm-hmm. and pretty boring to be sitting working at your desk by yourself. So he liked having me around because we could talk. But I would get there the day before the strip was due, and he would have hardly done anything in the previous week. <laughs> so we really, we really had to work. And, uh, you know, he also had a bit of a tendency to imbibe during the working day. And uh, that's another thing not too uncommon. So we'd get the strips done, everything would be done around midnight. And then the idea was, I would bring them into Manhattan with me, go up to the Daily News building, and back then there was there was no security on on place. You know, it's not like today. You, I just walk in the revolving door, walk by some guy sitting at the desk who didn't look up, get on the elevator, go up to the syndication floor, uh, and you know the stuff was wrapped, and I'd stick it under a doorway and leave. By that time, it was like two in the morning. And uh, so, you know, that was my, uh, uh, it kept me busy for, you know, a number of months. Uh, At the same time, I was working up at Continuity. I was assisting Ralph Reese and Larry Hama and stuff they were doing up there and enjoying the, I mean, it was, it was quite a, a nexus of the business because, all these guys that came in from out of town to deliver their jobs, like Gray Morrow and uh, Howie Chaikin, wasn't from out of town. I think he was uptown somewhere. But they would all come by and hang out for a while and mm-hmm. maybe show what they were doing and, you know, go out to lunch with us. and Tell some tales. Yeah, yeah, a lot of, uh, you know, it, it, it was really a lot of fun. It was very social. Yeah. And, uh, you know, enjoyed it and he was um he was kind of a real alpha type character because uh uh it's a, you know sort of like the born leader like if you're in the army and he was your captain you'd you'd feel pretty good about that he, he was always trying to get stuff done and organize things and you know you know getting people work if he felt they deserved it and uh getting uh uh, trying to get more rights for us, and yeah, you know, it's just a, a remarkable person. He was really at the but, top of his game at that point in time. Oh, like oh was... yeah, he had clout. <laughs> <laughs> but but the thing that was painful was that we and and you know it was pretty much an open door. People from 
some guy came in from Kansas with the samples. He could just come upstairs and have a few minutes with Neil. And uh, that was always tense for the rest of us because Neil would not pull his punches. You know, some guy would come up there and Neil would start leafing through his portfolio. And then he'd start making these little fart noises with his mouth, you know, like... Oh, that isn't too good, you know. And uh, (laughs) I remember him saying to a guy, so uh, how old are you? The guy said, oh, I'm 26. And he says, oh, too bad. And the guy says, what do you mean? And he says, well, you're too old to improve as much as you really need to. (laughs) But... uh, Another time, actually, a guy that was already working in the business, you know, Neil was sitting there doing his storyboards, and uh, this guy, one of these, uh, guy that was inking professionally came up and said to Neil, hey, Neil, I'd like you to take a look at this page and tell me if you see anything wrong with it. And so Neil glanced at it, and he says, you know, there's so much wrong with this page, it could take me about a half an hour to explain it to you, and I'm kind of busy right now. So if you could come back around 5.30, I'd be glad to go over it with you. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I don't think... Uh, it's like a rough-and-tumble well, comic school. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, uh, comics is one of these businesses that, you know, if you're going to get your heart broken, might as well get it broken right away. <laughs> it's going to be broken soon enough. So, uh, you know, and Neil had his opinions and not, you know, not everybody aspired to be him, but it was always worth listening to what he had to say. And uh, you could either take it or you couldn't. So, it, yeah, it's interesting. So anyway, with Little Orphan Annie, uh, the thing was, this was before that musical came out and it was losing papers and the and the way it worked was that with every paper it lost, uh, Tex Blaisdell was making less money. So it got to the point where he just didn't feel it was worth it anymore. And he offered it to me. It was still a lot more money than I was making at the time. It would have been like 350 bucks a week. Wow. And I talked to Neil, and he thought it was a bad idea for me to take it because it was going to lock me into something you know, the style of it had already been established. Um, it was funny. Tex had a stack that was at least a foot high of Harold Gray strips that the syndicate had given him, originals, so that he could just pretty much um, copy any pose that, you know, Annie or Daddy Warbucks or any of those characters had ever been in. Um you know, so, you know, you really, and, and Neil just thought, you know, at my age, it would have been a bad thing for my development just to get into this, yeah. this situation where I'd be, you know, making a reasonably decent amount of money for me and, and uh, not being forced to develop. And, you know, he was probably right. Uh, so it wasn't, so, you know, I continued to, assist other these other people and at, at at the end of this year which was 1973 ralph took me along with him to go visit wally wood 
uh, Ralph had a little gag gift to give him for Christmas, so we went up to Wood's apartment, and I showed him my samples. And Woody was a very um, kind of withdrawn and shy guy, normally uh, very depressed looking. And <laughs> I, uh, you know, I just kind of not be too obtrusive, you know, all their chatting. And Woody looked at my samples and <laughs> made the rather peculiar statement that I was better than he was at that age. I was 21. I don't think that's correct, but he could be alternately very kind or sometimes rather savage. <laughs> In that moment, he chose to be kind. <laughs> but um, anyway, so, you know, we had our visit and I didn't, nothing seemed to come of it. But uh, a month or two later, he called me up and woke me up. I, I was always a night owl. I'd asked if I wanted to come up and cut Ben days. And of course I did. And I got up there and uh, was uh, cutting, uh, doing zips. And Woody was uh, immediately started telling me about all his uh, depression. And uh, I think that the first thing I remember him saying to me was something like, uh, I just read an article about there are ten how there are ten primary causes of depression, and I have every single one of them. <laughs> it kind of went through the list, and uh, but uh, you know anyway, <clears throat> I I I, uh, I found it, it enjoyable to work with him, and you know he had his quirks. One of the things that was kind of took me aback was that after like a month or six weeks, my, uh, I went back and told my girlfriend, the same one I'm married to now, uh, that, you know, I, I'd go, I would go home at night and sort of vent a little bit about stuff that Woody did. And after a while, she said like, God, this guy Woody sounds like a pretty depressing person to hang out with. <laughs> and I said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, I must have given you a wrong idea. <laughs> <laughs> It's just, you know, I mean, it's the kind of stuff that you say when you're venting, but, you know, he was also just a real sweet guy, a real generous guy, and, um, Do you, and find you know, kind of his own worst enemy as far as, you know, his career and that sort of thing, but but he was, uh, you know, he was, he was a wonderful guy. I don't think anybody that ever worked for him didn't have tremendous affection for him. Uh and uh, obviously, I learned a lot. I, uh, was I kind he, of. Pardon? Was he normally that revealing with folks, or do you find that you kind of had like a really personal connection with them? Well, I think the people that he took on and that stayed as assistants had to function a bit like therapists. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, normally he was he was very tight-lipped. I mean, he just, you know, before I actually got introduced to him by Ralph, he had tried working up at Neil Adams' studio for maybe two weeks in Jack Abel's office because they were old friends. And I just don't think he could stand it. He couldn't stand people coming in and wanting to talk to him and the hubbub and that kind of thing. 
Um, so he, he didn't last long up there. And I, and I, at that time, I had no desire to go up and introduce myself to him and because I could see how inappropriate it would be, just, just the kind of the vibe he gave off. But, uh, no, he was very, um, you know, it tended to be maybe a little more open than you're accustomed to from most of your male friends. But um, he, uh, the, the problem was, was that he, he had this uh, drinking, uh, he, he kind of went on a biannual binge. What would always happen was there was an open bar at Phil Sewing's summer convention in July. It was around the 4th of July weekend. Open bar for pros. And then in December, there was an open bar at the comic company uh, Christmas parties. So these would set Woody off. He'd go there, he'd start drinking. Then he'd come back and he would, uh, I knew where I was in trouble one day when I showed up to work. He, he was constantly drinking tea. It, you know, he, he was chain smoking, drinking this very sweet tea he would make. So one day I got up there and he was asleep on his couch and I saw one of these little teacups full of drowned liquid on the table next to him, little coffee table. He didn't have a bed. His apartment was too small for that. He slept on the couch. So he, um, I picked up the cup and I smelled it, and I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> this doesn't smell like tea. And sure enough, he was, uh, you know, he'd have to be like, he would go on a binge for about a week. And then he would get very, very sick and would kind of, you know, really you know, swear off that he's never going to do it again, this kind of thing. And then he'd be fine for a while. Mm -hmm. But uh, it would recur. I remember and, talking to one underground cartoonist who told me, like, he never actually saw Woody drink, but everyone knew it. But it wasn't <laughs> like, you know, you'd visit him and it wouldn't be part of the action that would happen there. This is someone who was also, like, a recovering alcoholic as well. Um and so aware that's, of that. that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Now, there's, I know what he means because Wood was one of these guys that he could be, you, you wouldn't necessarily know it. He was, he was tended to be quiet. I had this experience which, with him, which I normally wouldn't talk about, but in looking, looking at that book where I gave an interview a couple of years after he died, you know, that, collection of Fantagraphics, I realized that I had talked about it, so no, the, the, the horse is already out of the barn on that, but I went to pick him up one day, because we were going to go shooting. We, we all like to go to this gravel pit and shoot, and um, Woody, he had a couple of pistols with him, like in a paper bag, and he said, you know, I picked him up, he seemed okay. Uh, he said, okay, well, we've got to go to the gun store first because we've got to buy some ammo. So I said, okay, so we go in the gun store, buy some ammo. And then he says, I want to go to this bar up the street. And I realized, oh, shit, he's, he's drinking. So I thought, well, I better go keep an eye on him. And um, we go up to this bar, and he sits at the bar. He's got this bag with a couple of pistols on it. Jesus. <laughs> so they the next to him. And I take a seat at, 
you know, not at the bar, at a table behind him, so I'm not necessarily identified with him, but just ready to spring into action should the need arise. And um, so the next thing that happens, he starts chatting up this woman next to him. And uh, he's gone, and then he's like, hey, Paul, this is uh, Doreen. She's going to go shooting with us. And I was like, oh, God. I got said, Woody, uh, we're leaving right now. We're leaving right now. I'm, I'm going out the door. Come with me. I'll give you a ride home. Because if you don't come with me, I'm leaving right now anyway. <laughs> I was ready for him to, like, start waving guns around and stuff. I mean, it was, uh, yeah. uh, I was quite alarmed. And he, uh, he wouldn't leave. So I just left. I, I, I just didn't know what was going to happen next, and I didn't think uh, my being there was going to help. And uh, so a couple days later, he called me up and told me I was right, and he was sorry. But, you know, these were the kind of things that could happen. But, you know, at the same time, as I said, he, he was uh, a, an amazing talent and, a, and a, a, a wonderful person to be around most of the time. I, uh, one of the things that I remember about him is kind of a talent. I hate to tell a story like that. <laughs> It makes me sound like kind of an ass. But um, there was this time early on when I did some work for him. And he owed me like, he was going to pay me like 30 bucks. So he used to have this, one of these little metal safes where he put all his change. And he said, how about I just give you the safe? And I picked it up and it was, I thought, it was no pennies, just like quarters, nickels, and dimes. And I said, Woody, this has got to be a lot more than 30 bucks. <laughs> he said, that's okay. It's okay. Take it. Take it. So I took it and I went to the bank the next day and it was like $150 in there. Jesus. And I went back, I went back next day and I said, Woody, that was 150 bucks. You owed me 30 bucks. And he just got this like, you know, childlike grin of delight on his face, you know, like, well, that was your lucky day, you know, <laughs> he was like that, he just, you know, was uh, very generous, and, and uh, stuff like money, it, it wasn't that important to him, you know, it was, it was uh, you know, you gotta love a guy like that. <laughs> well, it there's a lot of important things to kind of like help contextualize uh, what it like what he'd done it by that point is also like he'd provided avenues like I just there's a couple things to think about like how the the challenge of like not making a ton of cash and being in this continuity studios where you're like the elder statesman for everyone and you're just trying to pay your bills and everyone kind of wants their like moment in front of Jesus um, <laughs> and then as well like the work he had done with Wits End and providing avenues for his peers to kind of strike out and do their own personal work um, and to kind of keep that going well into the 70s. Um, and yeah. kind of the importance of that. One of the things about Wood that is, is tragic is, and, I, and I, this really came home to me when I was looking at the, 
you know, reading more of that two-volume set that, that just came out, you know, the life and legend of Wallace Wood, he said, how many things that projects that he was offered, that he was enthusiastic about, and got started on, just, just got chopped off, you know, mm-hmm. right? Just, uh, and how, you know, what a, what a, Terrible frustration that that is. You know, well, an example that comes to mind is uh, Sky Masters, the strip. But any any number of things were like that, where somebody would say, "Hey, you know, we got this idea, and you'll be you can do your own thing, and you can, you know, be a, a creative control." And then it just, you know, don't so, go nowhere. Yeah. You know, you you do all the preliminary work, and and I, I've been fortunate that. I have not really had that kind of experience, but it does lead to uh, some bitterness, I think. I got to expect that, like, he just, he would have a lot of people wanting a piece. Like, people wanting to take advantage of the situation. Like, here's this amazingly talented guy. And I've seen this with friends where um, people just come out of the woodwork wanting to, you know, like I said, take advantage and um, have a piece of that. And that's got to be really frustrating for a person who's just trying to, like, eke a living out of this. And people have all these, like, lofty um, ideas that kind of involve it when you have someone with exponential talent like that. Well, the, the one, one that he was very bitter about was uh, Ralph Bakshi, because I think Bakshi really... Uh, stole some of the ideas when he did that Wizards movie. Mm. Some of them were just lifted out of um, Woody's own uh, developmental ideas for the Wizard King, and uh, he was pretty pretty bitter about that. Um, I mean, another thing that's funny about Woody, and you know, it, it kind of uh, speaks to the a contrary aspect of his personality was um, uh, he, he didn't take advantage of the money, big money, you know, like, like advertising. He did a bit of advertising, did, you know, the famous Alka-Seltzer thing, but obviously he could have been as big in that field as Mark Drucker or Jack Davis. And he just, um, he couldn't, you know, he, he got so angry at, like, the art directors, you know, he said, some punk kid telling me to change this or change that, you know, this kind of stuff. And I think, you know, I've done a lot of work in advertising, and yes, people ask you to change things, and having, you know, having been an art director in advertising as well as an illustrator, I understand why that happens. It's because they have to deal with the needs of the client as well as, Mm-hmm. You know, what, whatever they might want to do. It's not personal. And it's usually kind of reasonable, if you understand it. I mean, there were very rare occasions on which I felt someone was asking me to change something, and I thought, wow, you're really making this worse, aren't you? Usually, I just thought, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. That that works better. But Woody, I don't know, it just, I, was it? Was he afraid of making it big? I don't know. You know just, it just very hard to, uh, uh, you know. Uh, another thing, 
that I, I, I was just rereading the, the Wizard King lately because uh, I had come across uh, Xeroxes I had made of a bunch of these early, very uh, alive and uh, just terrific little studies he'd done before the Wizard King. Uh, I found him in a file. I, you know, I have these kind of crummy Xeroxes. But then I look at the Wizard King and... Uh, um, Boy, I kind of hate to say this, but I, I feel like he sort of ran out of gas um, before he even completed that book. It, it just didn't have the look of a sustained labor of love. Yeah. The, the way, you know, he, he had done other stories. Like, I always loved that thing he did for Warren called The Curse. I, th- I thought that was just a, a beautiful story. And looking at The Wizard King, I just had this feeling of like, I don't know. It just uh, felt like he got tired of it at a certain point. And I don't know. Uh, it's tough to ruminate on all this stuff. It sounds like being like, he's such a pivotal figure in your life. It sounds like, yeah, like on so many different layers. Well, there's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was, uh, you know, I've had a few, very large characters in my life and he would be one and uh, certainly uh, you know it influenced me a lot I, I got a uh, it was funny because back in the uh, I don't know 80, 81 I got contacted to do a record cover for the Ramones it was for uh, Road to Ruin I think Bobby London recommended it me for it because uh, I came to mind as the guy who could do the best woody, <laughs> the best fake wood. Because really, I mean, I've seen like some of the drawings that I did for National Screw during that period have been sold, you know, put up online as being works by Wally Wood. Because you know, I was just so aping his his rendering style. But anyway, you know, I, that was this weird thing where I went up and met with the Ramones and their producer about three or four times and brought up a bunch of sketches and the whole thing just kind of fell apart. Cause I never really, I didn't, I failed to kind of grasp what they really wanted. Mm-hmm. But, um, so this, this felt like a funny little footnote in my <laughs> career. One of the things that I talk about with friends and, and folks is the idea of like, it's good to acknowledge your influences and how they um, work through your work and how you kind of work through your influences within your work and kind of have come out the end with your own style. Uh, that's true. That's true. I, I um, have had, like, early on, Drier was a big influence on me. And the first story I sold for heavy metal to heavy metal uh, tarot, I, I was really thinking about Philip Drier's work quite a bit. And um, that must have been just berserk at that point in time. Seeing that was it, pure imagination. Those books that came out, uh, yeah, like Lone Sloan and and um, I don't even remember. I was just delirious. Yeah. The stuff. Oh, yeah. It, well, I was working in the comic book store, so I got to see some of this stuff, you know, that I hadn't been exposed to before. 
And, uh, and uh, well, as you mentioned earlier, this was at the same time that um, Crumb Comics and Rick Griffin and Greg Irons, these people were still, you know, I'd go to the bookstore on St. Mark's Place and go through the racks there, and, oh, God, there's a new... Uh, a new thing by Greg Irons or, you know, Crumb, and that was, you know, <laughs> that stuff really uh, was very exciting to me. I didn't, I didn't really like all of the comics, underground comics. There are a lot of them that really didn't do anything for me, but, yeah, some of that stuff really, yeah, really my... Uh, but you're saying uh, so Droulet was one at a particular point that you kind of had to work through within your own work? Um... Well, it kind of, his sense of scale and grandeur and, uh, yeah, that was, that was, uh, that really impressed me and that, that, you know, these alternate worlds and things that he created. Um, then, you know, uh, it's kind of funny, like you say, you have to work through it. Like, I think Wood was an amazing inker. And people often uh, comment on the fact that he improves. He improved everybody he inked, mm-hmm. uh, whether it was Kirby or, or Rich Buckler or any any Ditko, any of these people. He he um, he always did a great job on their pencils. And uh, certainly, I I I was never. <laughs> that's one thing I I wish he had left me in as well. You know, his, his inking ability, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, I was never able to do that. I mean, a guy like Woody could ink with a brush, and I, I was pretty much stuck with a pen. I never developed the kind of uh, control with a brush that he had. One of the first jobs that I, I sold was to this magazine that uh, your interviewee Patrick uh, Rosencrantz referenced, <laughs> called the Harpoon, which was a, a cheap knockoff of the Lampoon. And I drew a story for them, and I was afraid to ink it at the time. This was like, you know, I don't know, 73 or something, maybe early 74. Uh, and I got Russ Heath to ink it, because Russ was one of these guys that was kind of always late on his books and always waiting for the next paycheck. And so he said, well, I'll, I'll ink it for you if you pay me in cash when I'm done. And I said, yeah, okay, sure. And so he did it. And watching him, he actually inked the lettering with a brush, and it was perfect. It looked like it had been done with the speedball lettering nib. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, holy crap. I mean, that, that level of uh, control. But uh, There's, a, there's a, like a generational tradecraft that these guys have where is really fascinating. Like that, that was their, I don't know how to kind of put the words to it. Um, you know, it was funny that Wood went to that, uh, what they called Hogarth school, you know, uh, which was a school of, what was it? What do they call it first? Comics and illustration. And then later visual arts. Oh, the SCA. School of visual arts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he went there after getting out of the military and he used to say, the only thing I learned there was how to hold a brush correctly. And I thought, well, <laughs> it must have been pretty good training, because I guess I never, if that's the secret, I never learned it. 
But, um, yeah, yeah, he was, uh, he, he was quite remarkable in that way. And that, that was one of the very sad things that happened in his last couple of years was he started getting this crescendo of health problems. Mm-hmm. And due to having not had his, you know, gone to a doctor or had any of his issues attended to, he had very high blood pressure and it cost him the vision in one eye. And without both eyes, uh, he didn't really have that perception, which he said was uh, key to working with the brush properly. You know, you have to know exactly when that tip is going to hit the page. So the last, you know, couple things that he did that, uh, like those, those pornographic, the bang magazine and stuff like this, you know, he had to work with a, um, with a, a pen, soft felt tip pen kind of thing. Uh, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, my own dad had a stroke a number of years ago couple of years ago now and it's it's hard to kind of understate or overstate i don't know which term the the effects that that strokes have on folks on a multitude of levels um, mm. and and knowing that that was the especially with the eye that was the the thing that caused it um it's really difficult for folks to really understand of just what happens after a stroke to a person's head um when that that damage is actually from brain damage Wow. Yeah, well, his natural inclination toward being depressed got quite a bit worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, Woody, I guess, um, you know, I don't want to be like the long-distance uh, di- diagnostician, but he seemed to have sort of manic and depressive cycles and would... Um, he would get depressed, but then he would bounce back and just be like super excited about stuff and just, you know, do all this great stuff and be all uh, happy. And, you know, like even I remember when we were working on these things he did for Plop, he was very up. He was having a great time. We did these, um, uh, you know, fractured poetry kind of stuff, little limericks, and mm-hmm. he did the Lord of the Rings spoof, and yeah, he was just really having a good time with that, and then there would be a down period, and, and I think near the end, there just wasn't any more yeah. up, you know, it's just down, but um, I want to bring us, I'm going to put us into a non sequitur, because um, I feel like we're getting heavy. Um, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Don't want to do that. Um, I'm known as a, a lighthearted fellow. <laughs> Let, let's get back to that lighthearted fellow. Um, I mean, we we really touched on acknowledged the the importance of, of wood uh, within your own work, um, but we haven't really touched on your own work as much. Um, yeah. And uh, we talked a little bit about the bus, uh, but one of the big pieces of the the waiting the collapse. Um, which I must say the title is even more apropos than ever right now, um, <laughs> is the, the Dope Rider. Um, yeah, yeah. And you talked a little bit about seeing the Dali uh, stuff in Europe, uh, <laughs> which, which is a very 
uh, influential part to the Dope Rider. I feel like it's like one part Dally and one part Ditko and all these other pieces thrown in there. Um, yeah, a lot of, uh, some Magritte, some Escher. I, I shamelessly uh, uh, worked whatever influence I found. That, that uh, Well, Dope Rider started, I mentioned that at a certain point I had finally finished a story and was able to start showing it to people like Neil Adams. And that story was a kind of a surrealistic Western where a real badass-looking, uh, you know, gunslinger sort of rides into this valley. And it's sort of like an, an afterlife. It's like everything there is death. And at last he, he meets death and he sort of overcomes him and then he turns into the same character but the character looks like dope rider it's it's like you know skeletal head and gunfighter and um so when i went up to harpoon uh the editor there dennis lopez uh said well this is pretty cool you should you know make it like a drug thing and have uh you know call it dope rider or something and uh that that was you know that'd be cool, and uh, <laughs> you know I actually I have to give Dennis uh, a fair amount of credit for pushing me in that direction, um, and so you know I went and I I did that, and, and Dennis was giving me um, you know kind of a lot of uh, editorial input. And some of which was rather unfortunate because in the first episode, Dope Rider is actually scoring some heroin and shooting up. And, um, and that, uh, you know, was maybe not in the best taste. Uh, but, <laughs> at, I mean, I, I, at the time, I, I just wanted to do sort of things that were startling. And so, you know, I went with that. And so then we, we did that. And then. I, we did a second one, which is the one that I don't think is very good. I didn't include it in the book. And actually, and Dennis started losing heart and saying, well, um, I don't know. I, I don't know about Dope Rider. I wish I'd get some mail on it. So uh, I thought, oh, oh, that can be arranged. And uh, I had a sister living in uh, Pittsburgh at the time, going to college. So I had her write a big fan letter for Dope Rider and uh, sign it with a fake name and mail it from Pittsburgh. And that was really like the only fan letter Dennis ever got for his magazine because he was so excited about it. And, and when he told me about it, uh, it had transformed from a letter to letters. You know, we're getting letters on Dope Rider. So, yeah, yeah, let's do another one. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I, I did the third one, which I... I I think it was the first one that was kind of what it should be. And then um, then after that one came out, uh, Dennis said, hey, uh, I heard from High Times. You know, that, that had just started at that point. And they want to go with it. They, they, they want to use Dope Rider. And I said, well, you know, is that okay? Is that okay if I take it over there? And he said, yeah, yeah, sure, fine, yeah take it there, you know, and, um, so I did, and I, I, uh, I drew the first episode for them, and, uh, the guy that ran High Times was a really strange character, 
he called himself Tom Forsad, which I, I, his last name is actually King, but I think, uh, yeah, like Facade. Yeah. Uh, he, he had made quite a bit of money smuggling marijuana into the U.S. in, like, you know, DC-3s. And so he, he had a comfortable uh, wad. And, um, and he sort of made a name for himself, like being a yippie and throwing pies and politicians' faces and stuff. <laughs> but anyway, so he started this magazine. He, he actually, the first issue he published was just sort of like a goof. But it sold very well, and so he realized he had something there. And, and he had a niche uh, product. Yeah, yeah. That still survives as a niche product. It's pretty impressive. Um, he brought me in. Now, it's interesting that... The, so I did my strip, and uh, he called me up late at night. I wish, that was, but in fact, I wish I had a recording of that call. Because he was just rambling. He was obviously high and was just rambling about the strip. And it was a very weird conversation. I didn't have much to say much. But uh, he really liked it. And um, so, you know, I, I was, was in there. And uh, then <laughs> after the first, uh, it, uh, it was the previous issue of Dope Rider uh, of High Times, that had Dope Rider actually had a Rand Holmes piece in it, the Herald Head. Oh, nice. I don't know if he just didn't want to keep doing stuff for them, but anyway, that that was the only. I think he, after that it was just he wasn't technically allowed in America at that point. Oh. Uh, and so he uh, was limited to his capacity being in Vancouver. I think. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I can tell uh, you more later. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, it was funny because uh, I had unwisely drawn Dope Rider in a Hells Angels jacket, you know, vest with the the uh, their mon- their little uh, trademark logo on the back, and they sent the High Times offices were not you know only a few blocks from the Hells Angels headquarters, so they sent three very strapping fellows up there to. Uh, discuss the matter, and uh, I got a call from uh, Tom Fursad telling me that this must never happen again. <laughs> so even it, it, I made sure it didn't happen in awaiting the collapse. I, I put a different logo on his jacket, but that shows what a foolish young man I was. Uh, so anyway, I, you know, I did a, I did a couple more uh, dope riders, and uh, then a sort of an unfortunate thing happened, which was Dennis Lopez, who I thought had been gracious in bidding me adieu, he uh, decided that he should have a piece of the action and, uh, you know, threaten the high times that, you know, with lawyers and stuff. And then they got very nervous. And uh, so we sort of, tapered off for a while until the Dennis Lopez threat went away. And it's, it's kind of strange. Um, I kind of worried about Dennis for years that he would try to come after me or cause some problem for me. And so I, I was reluctant to kind of acknowledge the fact that he really had contributed to the concept at the beginning. But, um, 
weirdly, I, I found out that he, he killed himself a couple of years ago. So I guess I can belatedly acknowledge that, you know, without worrying that it'll be used against me or, um, I mean, you know. it sounds like contributions that would come from an editorial level, like... You're, you're, that's what... Uh, that's interesting, because that's what someone else told him. I, I had a little spy in the uh, editorial offices who said that he heard the, the lawyer telling Dennis, this is just editorial stuff, it doesn't give you ownership. So, but nevertheless, High Times was nervous for a little while. Uh, but anyway... So I didn't do that many in those old days. I, I did about 38 pages in all, uh, off and on. And then I began to get busy with other, you know, I started getting work in the toy business quite a bit. And then I started getting work in advertising. And, you know, it just began to kind of derail me from... Uh, and then I did have a, like a penciled heavy metal uh, dope writer story that I actually had to shelve for a few years because I didn't have time to finish it up. And when I finished it up and brought it to them, they were at a very low point. They could only print it in black and white. They could only pay me 50 bucks a page, you know, whereas they used to pay me like 250 a page. Oh, wow. And uh, so that, you know, it just seemed like... Uh, I, I didn't have that on my mind anymore. And then um, what happened later was that uh, when I started doing the new uh, bus strips, I thought, well, where can I get these published where I could keep the rights on them? So I submitted them to Mad Magazine, and they told me, oh, no, you know, uh, we like these, but if we ran them, we would own it. We would own the whole property. Yeah. I thought, well, that that doesn't sound very good to me. Yeah. And then I sent it to High Times, and they said, well, we don't know if we want to run these, but we're about to have our 40th anniversary issue. Would you like to do another dope rider in it? After all, you were in our first... Or, first anniversary issue, <laughs> second year. <laughs> so I said, sure, sure, absolutely, I'll do it. So I, uh, you know, I drew it up, I sent them the pencils, and uh, uh, they're excited about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I sent them, uh, what, did, what did the editor say? You passed the audition, you know, the old Beatles thing. <laughs> but, um uh, I did it up, and then they said, uh, how'd you like to do a page a month? And I said, sure. So since January of uh, 2015, I've been doing a page a month, and I've missed a couple of months, but it... Um, uh, you know, just when too many other things were going on, like moving and stuff like that. And it, it, it's, it's been a little weird because it's actually a lot harder to come up with a page a month than it would have been to come up with like two pages every two months. Because it means I have to come up with a whole scenario and find some way to compress it into one page. But uh, nevertheless, 
Uh, I've been doing it. I've been pretty excited about it. And I've already done a lot more pages than I did back in the 70s and 80s. So maybe in two years we'll put out a book of that stuff. Uh, uh, you know, the whole collected dope writer thing. Mm-hmm. I, I keep assuming I'm going to run out of gas eventually on it, but uh, and uh, somehow something comes to mind. Are you still continuing the same surrealness with the one-pagers? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to... You know, the, the funny thing is, uh, you do change over time, so nothing that you do now... Nothing that I do now is going to look like what I was doing 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, part of it is that with a one-page story, one thing, the old book writers used to be kind of grim sometimes. You know, he was like shooting people and whatnot. And I, and I did actually have a heroin one in there, but Tom Frasad said, uh, Ixnay on the Edel-A drugs. Yeah. So I, I realized that was a good thought, you know, no, no, just just have it be marijuana and not get into other nasty stuff. Uh, so there's that, and um, stylistically, I've had part of it, you know, this is a weird thing, and I've heard other cartoonists talk about it. I've had to change my style, partly because the materials have changed. I used to work on the top quality Strathmore uh, drawing boards mm-hmm. with, um, you know, with an old fashioned pen nib, like a Hunt's 22 pen nib and in India ink. And in recent years, I, I guess Strathmore's farming out its, you know, work to the low bidder somewhere. And when I try to use the old pen on it, um, the line bleeds a little bit. It feathers when the, when the nib, you know, kind of scratches the paper, and it, it really is different. So I've had to transition to working with a fountain pen, uh, which is which is fine, but it's a thicker line, and maybe it gives it a slightly more cartoony look than the, um, you know, the, the, that that fine line. Mm-hmm. But uh, nevertheless, you know, whatever. So the the, the book's a little, the story's a little different. And I'm also trying to make it a little more funny than it used to be. I, I want to have some kind of payoff. It's only one page, so people need to at least get a get a laugh at the end of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, so remember, I haven't had any, pardon. I would say I remember I read a thing once where Robert Crumb uh, is was buying old Archie pages and drawing on the back. That's exactly who pages. I was thinking of. Yeah. I was, that's exactly who I was thinking of because I read that he said. Like he has fans that will buy old pages that have no collector value, and he draws on the back of them. So I felt very validated that someone else had noticed this. And when I was um, when the new edition of uh, Dover edition of uh, Murder by Remote Control came out, I actually had a, a cover design that I had penciled in the '80s, but never ranked because the Valentine didn't want it, but Dover wanted it. So I inked it and I thought, oh my God, it really, it is. I'm not, I'm not delusional. This paper is much better. The, the, the other thing about the, the old paper is that you could actually, 
use an electric eraser on it and still have a surface that you could ink on. Not, you know, that, that's hopeless now. If you use the electric eraser on it, you're just tearing it to shreds. So, you know, things have changed in that way. I have a friend who, uh, he's Australian, and he has to get his paper shipped from Australia that he uses. And he lives in the States now. So it's like he had to wait to start his book until that shipment of uh, paper and ink, or uh, I think it was the paint that he uses to color with. I wonder, do they actually have like better paper in Australia? It may huh. just be him needing to use what he used before, but he very yeah. swears by it, and he's very particular about what he does with it, and he, you know, he will also in turn sell the art quite well. Uh, so I think in all in all, it like works quite nicely. But it's you, you, alluded, yeah. you alluded to something right there that I think is, is quite true, which is that um, you want to work with the materials that you're familiar with. Like, have you ever read about, let's say, um, a writer who's had a long career and still has to work on a mechanical typewriter? Because sitting down at that typewriter does something to him or her that gets the juices flowing, get, gets, gets it coming. And if we were going to sit at a word processor, it wouldn't work. And I think that, you know, for me, I've never transitioned to actually drawing on the computer. I color on the computer. But I like to draw with, like, a, you know, a yellow pencil, a Ticonderoga. Uh, it's my favorite. And, you know, if I pick up a mechanical pencil, it, it's just... I don't know. It's just not the same. Yeah. You, you want all those, your little ducks in a row to get going. What's, it's one interesting kind of flip side to that is uh, Bukowski, when he got a computer, his output skyrocketed because he could type quicker uh. and the things wouldn't mash up. Like with a typewriter, how like, you know, the, like the, whatever, hitting the, whatever the keys spring. Oh, when, they, when they get, get stuck together. Exactly. too fast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't, you have to have the right rhythm. Yeah, those yeah. are the old days. Um, the other part that I'm really interested in is um, sometimes what I find with folks that kind of come back to, um, to coloring work um, can sometimes go too far into the technology. Um, where with me, uh, I'm, what I find with your work is you're still capturing a really specific palette with it and you're not going overboard with gradients you're you're kind of like there's a continuity within your work of like past and present uh correct i and this is where i am grateful to people who gave me advice because when i started doing the new dope writer for high times the guy said um we like that sort of what he called my vintage look. A lot of people don't like the look of a lot of like the Marvel comics where it's all kind of airbrushy and there's not even that much black in it because everything is just rendered in color. And, um, and so I got that advice from the High Times people and I got that advice from my French publisher because when I started recoloring my work, he sort of gently suggested that maybe keep the gradients to a minimum. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did, 
back, you know, back in the old days when I started working for High Times and then for Heavy Metal, um, I used to use Pantone, which was, you know, a colored film. Kind of, it was like Zipatone. It was a film with an adhesive backing that came on a kind of waxy backing uh, paper. And you'd peel it off and you'd put it on a sheet of acetate over your artwork and trim it to fit. And it was excruciatingly time-consuming. It's just, I got pretty fast at it. And you got these really nice, clean, vivid colors. And after a while, I actually introduced some gradients so that if I had a big sky, I could put a gradient in it. And sometimes that really felt necessary that it not look flat. And so, you know, even in some of my old work, I had that. Um, but one of the one of the disadvantages of Pantone was that the colors were very saturated. So everything was a bright color, you know, with very few exceptions. So I did take the liberty when recoloring the work in um, Awaiting the Collapse to gray down or, or, you know, mute some colors that I didn't have the option of muting <laughs> when I colored it in the first place. You know, you really didn't have any choice. It just... It, uh, I love that. Stuck with <laughs> Instead of, like, going overboard, you're going, like, you're kind of pulling it back in. Yeah, like, I, I, I don't know. Hopefully my taste has improved a bit over the years. <laughs> There's this great story, I forget who told me, about it, about how in the 60s there was a limited, I think you can only use three colors, I think it was a DC or something and Marvel had four, and Neil Adams was like, I need more colors um, <laughs> and, and actually contacted the printer to see what it would take, and because DC's like we're not changing this at all and just like made the change happen um, Wow Yeah. Well, that, that, that's absolutely true I mean, all the colors were just made up of you know, little uh, dot. When I was working at Screw, um, that was the same kind of deal. You you did your black and white art, and then you had the option of uh, two two colors in addition to the black. And I actually found that to be kind of a neat graphic challenge because if you picked, let's say, orange and blue, you could make a pretty nice brown by. Uh, putting, you know, like a, a blue dot pattern. You know, everything had to be done with zipatones or, or ruby lifts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, experimenting with that, I found that, I found that to be kind of fun, but it, obviously quite limiting. You, you, uh, but yet another one of these graphic challenges. Some people still kind of use things in that context. Um... I actually had one friend who colored a comic specifically using Ruby Lifts. This was about 10 mm. years ago. Um, mm-hmm. It was a lot of work, but it turns out part of the reason was because he was so apprehensive about learning technologies and kind of had a bit of a fear about that. Was uh-huh. really, it's interesting, that kind of obsession. <laughs> well, I, I used a little zip town on a dope writer uh, a few months ago, and the art director said, uh, can you please take that off because... You know, the scanning problem, mm. which, uh, the I, yeah, the moray, it, it just, it's just so, yeah, I got a big, I got a pretty big library of, of zip tone. I don't know what that, I might just put it up on eBay because uh, people seem to be buying it. But, you know, um, I noticed that the, uh, people in Japan that are producing, uh, 
material for anime artists have reintroduced Zipatone because uh, a lot of that stuff is done with it. And uh, so they have their catalogs of uh, all the dot patterns again. It's come back. <laughs> oh, I know people <laughs> that scrounge for it. Um, now, your next book you have coming out uh, is a collection of um, kind of continuing off from some cartoons you did for Adult Swim, the Hieronymus Bosch series. Um, tell me about where that, how that cartoon came about. Uh, okay, well, um, it, it sort of goes back a ways because... It's been about 10 or 12 years ago. I was trying to think of another comic I could come up with. And I have always loved Hieronymus Bosch, um, you know, the, the, the depiction of hell specifically. And uh, I've used a lot of those images, like you used them in The Bus, I've used them in Dope Rider, you know, these creatures that he invented. Uh, and if, if, if he's somewhere in the afterlife, he's probably pissed as hell because I think he really took that stuff seriously, you know. I don't think he, I don't think he was some guy who thought he was slipping surrealism uh, off on the, the rubes. I think he really, uh, <laughs> this was no laughing matter to him. The world was burning anyway, down. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, so, uh, you know, I wanted to come up with a cartoon that was kind of set in that hell. And I made some little sketches on it, and I had a little folder, and every once in a while I had sort of a half-baked idea, and I'd jot it down. But it never seemed to be going anywhere. And then, uh, five or six years ago, uh, I thought, well, let's just, let's just do my own thing. You know, forget about making it Hieronymus Bosch's vision, and do my own vision. <clears throat> so I started coming up with cartoons that are more like, it's hell, but it's it's a little bit like real life, and like a grim life. There's no, um, you know, it's kind of shabby and gloomy. I didn't have to rule any lines. Everything's a little crooked, a little off. And there's this character, this kind of medieval-looking character, because uh, I think of hell as, being very medieval and somehow it doesn't work when you <laughs> bring it up to the modern age. And um, I also had people in clothes in hell. I, I just didn't want a bunch of naked people running around. It was uh, too depressing. Um, so, and there are demons and they, they um, uh, every, everything he tries to do kind of ends up badly. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, one of these characters who's, retains optimism, tries to get away with stuff, tries to, you know, rebel, but ultimately kind of, you know, the system uh, uh, you know, ruins his little efforts, but never actually succeeds in crushing his spirit. So I've been, you know, drawing these things up and figuring, not quite sure what to do with it, but um if worse came to worse, maybe put, just put it on the Internet. It all depended on how much I could get done. And eventually, you know, I had about 40 of them, 40 or more. And my French publisher started saying, you know, maybe we could do a book of that. And I had shown them to Mad Magazine, actually, when I only had a few. Because I thought, well, this was around the time that they said if they bought the bus that they would own it. And then I thought, well, 
maybe I could do this other strip and they could own that because I don't know how far I can take it anyway. So I showed them the, uh, you know, first half a dozen Hieronymus and Bosch's that I did. And the, the, the guy there, and I have to say, he's a very nice guy. I like him. You know, it's not like I resent him, but his, uh, Ryan Flanders was the guy I was dealing with. Mm-hmm. But very right. nice person. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, he, he couldn't be nicer. But he said, well, you know, we liked it. We were giving it consideration, but it's just too conceptual for us. You know, we, we have to be a little more literal with everything. So, you know, that was that. And that turned out for the best because not, you know, a year or so later, I got a, a message out of the blue from Adult Swim from uh, Peter Karpik there, who's a cartoon editor on their website, and he wondered if I had anything, if I'd like to develop a strip for them. And I said, well, I have developed a strip, and I'd love for you to run it, but I need to keep the rights to, you know, publish it as a book. And he said, well, no problem. And they actually paid very well, and they ran about 19 of the strips, and then they archived them there, and they're still on their in the comic section of their, their web page, uh, the, the 19 that they ran. And so that turned out to be a much better deal than having Mad run them. I mean, Mad publishes so infrequently at this point, mm-hmm. and they, they don't really pay that well. And it, it just wouldn't really be that much exposure. I don't know how much exposure I got from Adult Swim, but, you know, I mean, Mad is one of these magazines that when you mention it to people, it's one of those... Hey, you mean they're still publishing that? You know, it has that kind of kind of quality that uh, it's not. You know, when I was a kid, it was huge, but I don't think so anymore. Magazines in general. So, yeah, it's very sad. They've did a but, a, a whole change with Matt and moved to the West Coast. It's a whole different. Yeah, yeah, and my, and Ryan didn't move with it, I guess. Nope. No. He's a New York boy. But yeah. <laughs> So, um, you know, it's funny that these magazines like High Times, these real niche magazines, uh, have done okay because uh, their advertisers have nowhere else to go. I I think that what killed, you know, Newsweek and magazines like that is they're too too general interests. There's no reason for anyone to want to put their ads in there or to want to look at it, but Something like high, high Times is so niche that, that it survives. And, you know, I, I would say it pays me a, a, a decent amount of money, you know, for, uh, for my strip. So very happy about that. And so you'll have the, the Bosch book. Yeah, so, so at this point I've got over, I'm, I'm closing in on about 100 pages of this oh, stuff wow. because I felt I had to make a little section up in front, a little cartoon section about why he happened to end up in hell and what his misbehavior consisted of. And actually, at around the time of his demise, which I, I put it about 1508, he was... It didn't really take much to go to hell. Boy, they were taking those, you know, that stuff about thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass. You know, that stuff, boy, 
pretty hard not to do any of that. And uh, there you go. So he, uh, yeah, there he is. He's in hell. I, I, I try to keep it, uh, trying to, you know, I didn't want it to get, like, like when you read, I tried to read Dante, couldn't read Dante. And then I went to Dante and plain image in plain English. That's sort of like Dante for dummies. Mm-hmm. And that was still a little too, uh, over my head. So then I got the comic book version of, uh, Dante by, uh, this guy Emerson, very, very good stuff. And, uh, Anyway, so I did finish Dante in that form. But Dante is a little too gruesome. You know, people are being impaled on spikes and hacked into small pieces. And I didn't want to get that, uh, you know, I I didn't want people to feel the pain as they looked at this stuff. So it's it's more like Roadrunner type stuff. (laughs) Except occasionally a big torrent of shit comes out of the sky and lands on this guy. That's that's the... One of the sad things. My publisher was asking me why so much shit. And I said, well, you know, people are always talking about all the shit they have to take in this life. I figure if that's what's bothering them and they end up in hell, they're going to have to take a lot more of it. (laughs) Can can you imagine anything worse than shit? (laughs) Well, Dante even uses shit a bit. bit, You know, there are people uh, stuck in these, these... Canals full of shit and things like that. Yeah, I I mean, this is a little... I'm hoping that people that like the bus will like this because it has a a certain amount of surrealistic stuff in it, with maybe a third. And then a lot of it is more... a little more slapstick, a little more physical humor, you know, falling down a manhole type stuff. But we shall see. It's... And you're expecting that out in the uh, near the end of the year. Yeah, yeah. I, it's almost done. Claude has it published. I think the last Wedding the Collapse was published in the Czech Czech Republic, and he expects no problems with that. And uh, yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make my way to Angoulême for the first time in oh, January wow. and sign books. I've, I've done a couple of appearances I, I you know it's weird because uh not not to whine or anything but i'm not really a, uh that big a deal in the american comic scene because I, I never did superheroes but in france i've been you know in november of last year and just a couple of weeks ago i was invited to be at a french convention and they paid my flight and they paid my hotel and my meals and they had big exhibition of my work and I thought holy boy this this France place is something else it, it, <laughs> for, <laughs> they have a lot of uh, a lot of pull but I, I mean I wonder how much um, I mean there's two different types of comic shows in North America there's the big you know, cape and movie stars, but there's also the smaller comic book festivals, and I just wonder how much those folks are aware of how to get even in touch. Um, in some ways, because like, like I was saying, when the bus, when that collection came out in tw- 2012, that was like a big like, oh wow, like kind of <laughs> like in a lot of ways, people might think like you're off the grid, um, but I mean here we're having like a very fulsome convo, um, so you're obviously not. You know, hiding in the in the forest somewhere. Um, 
No, I mean, I, uh, I, I'm not that hard to find on the internet because my old uh, uh, storyboard seeking, storyboard work seeking site is still up, even if I'm not doing much of that lately. Uh, and I, you know, I do hear from people, but you're right. You know, the thing is in America, really the big thing is the superheroes. And in France, it's really not the superheroes. Mm-hmm. And, and when you go to the, well, I've been to only two conventions now, but it's, it seems to be like a different crowd. It's like normal people with, you know, kids and, you know, husbands and wives and middle-aged people and older people and young people. And it, it's just like a whole general cross-section of society. It, does, it doesn't seem like this is a subculture kind of thing. Now, I haven't been to that many comic conventions in recent years, but so I'm talking from the perspective of the 70s yeah. when it wasn't, you know, to see a guy that actually had a girlfriend with him was like, whoa, I know. <laughs> that guy, he's got it going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're, the, the small press shows are very different now. Like it's, it's like probably, there's a show that I'm a part, uh, one of the organizers of, and it's like our pres- exhibitors are more than half women. I think we, yeah, we figured yeah. out it's 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 really neat and it's really changed a lot. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll... Yeah, I know I, I, the only um, I've done Comic Arts Brooklyn because oh, okay. uh, Dave Fowler's thing twice. I actually forgot to sign up in time last year, but um, that's great. I and, and it's not you know he he has it priced. You can get a table for a low enough price that you can actually come out there having made money. Yeah. <laughs> and at, at these big shows, I think, you know, like even like Kineticon, the table is like 800 bucks. I think 800, I, what am I supposed to make to, 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 to pay an $800 table fee? It's, yeah. it's not reasonable. No, the, the show that I'm a part of, I think our, our full table is like $160. Like, wow, that's that's. I think I don't even need a full table. I'm good with half. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people are like that. Um, but I do hope. Like I didn't. It's, I didn't even know you were uh, at any of those Brooklyn shows. So that's that's good to know. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna try to, especially when the Ronimus and Bosch book comes comes out. Uh, one of the things that I've been thinking for a few years is like the first time I went to the Brooklyn show, all I had was bus books. That was like three or four years ago. And then I thought, well, okay, now I've got bus books. I've got the Dover edition of Murder by Remote Control. I've got a waiting of the collapse. And then I'll have Hieronymus and Bosch. And that's, that's a pretty respectable amount of books to put out on the table for people to choose from. And hopefully, you know, it makes it seem more and more my while to try to make my way out to some of these shows. Um, well, I suggest going to the one in Toronto. Um, if you're ah. you're in Connecticut, right? Yeah, yeah. And that one's that one's well worth the the one they do in May. It's a very good show. Um, what do they call it? TCAF, Toronto Comic Art Festival, and it's uh, probably the biggest as far as that kind of show in North America. Um, ah. And they've been doing it for many years, probably thirteen, fourteen years now. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a good show. So. Yeah, I got I got a Canadian connection. My mom is French Canadian. There we go. Yeah, yeah. You'll have to come Not see the... how your people live. 
I would tell you, I, my mother was always trying to get us to learn French when we were kids, and not that much of it stuck. But when I was over in France a few weeks ago, I thought, man, I, I, I studied the, for a couple months now. I've been listening to French lessons, and I was thinking, I have got to get better at this because this idea that you're going to go to some other country and everyone's going to speak English, even a little bit, forget it. You, you know, you've got to have some ability to make yourself understood. It's It's unreasonable to expect yeah. otherwise so i've been that's my project there you go. well thank you paul yeah. for taking the time to chat with me today um, Great. hey you know i was curious I, I may be the oldest guy you've talked to i was thinking that you talked to neil adams but that was 12 years ago and he's 11 years older than me so i'm older now than neil was when you talked to him i uh last fall i talked to someone in his 90s it wasn't the mad guy, was it? The uh, El Jaffe? The mad no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's this guy, uh, Jonah Kinnigstein, who's an uh, impressionist painter that did these comics in the 70s and 80s. He's one panel strips about how much he hated um, modern art. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Cool. Yeah. All right. We're, we're great. Yeah. I, I enjoy it. It's a, it's a treat. Yeah. No, it's a, it's, and one of the things that's really important for me is to kind of catch these, these bits of history and talk about that and kind of catalog it. And so folks kind of get a context. As I said, you, you do play a really interesting role uh, as someone who is kind of coming between times um, after a lot of the underground guys, but before some of the other stuff. And so you, you've kind of come at a cross section. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was very excited to get, you know, as soon as I saw that first issue of heavy metal come out, I thought, man, this is for me. I got to get into this. And, uh, yeah. So a reminder, folks, you can get the bus, the bus two and a waiting collapse. And in the fall, the Hieronymus Bosch collection, um, all from, how do you pronounce the name of the publisher? Tenibus. It's not like cannabis. It's cannabis. T-A-N-I-B-I-S. Uh, I'm, I'm selling my books through Amazon and also through eBay. I, I, I sign and, you know, waiting to collapse, I always do a little sketch in the front. Oh, nice. Uh, if anybody buys them from me personally. Cool. I will post some links with the interview. <laughs> In a bus down the boulevard And the place was pretty packed yeah. But a seat so I had to stand With a perverse in the back It was smelling like a locker room There was junk all over the floor We're already packed in like sardines But we're stopping to pick up more Look out! Another one rides the bus uh. Another one rides the bus uh. And another comes on And another comes on Another one rides the bus Hey, he's gonna sit by you Another one rides the bus Case broken me in the ribs, there's an elbow in my ear. There's a smelly old bum standing next to me, hasn't showered in a year. Well, I think I'm missing a contact lens, I think my wallet's gone. And I think this bus is stopping again, let a couple more freaks get on. Look out! Another one rides the bus. Another one rides the bus. Hey, he's gonna sit by you, another one rides the bus. Another one rides the bus. Hey, he's gonna sit by you, another one rides the bus. 
another one rides a bus. And another comes on, and another comes on. Another one rides a bus. Hey, he's gonna sit by you. Another one rides a bus. Another one rides a bus. Hey, he's gonna sit by you. Another one rides a bus. bus. 